Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Lincoln Smith, who is a senior portfolio analyst and partner at Auburn. Lincoln, welcome. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. So today we're going to talk about the, I don't know how to describe it, this immense rise in SPACs and the influence of SPACs in the, in the marketplace. Maybe can you give a bit of a context in terms of what actually a SPAC is and, and what we're seeing in the market today? Yeah, sure. It's definitely had a few of the uh, financial headlines of late, kind of the the, the SPAC bubble, uh, the SPAC resurgence, all of those types of things. They have been around for a long time. So the, the, the acronym stands for a Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Uh, and they've been around since the 1980s. And funnily enough, the, their usage and popularity has uh, fluctuated over that time as well. So funnily enough, in uh, 2007, we wrote um, over the last 24 months, a plethora of SPACs have gone public in the US. Um, and they're essentially blank check entities that are typically development stage companies with no specific business plan other than a stated intention to merge or acquire an unidentified entity at some point in the future. When they go public, they have no operating businesses, they only have a management team with a reputation. And funnily enough, you can use exactly the same uh, definition now, um, but other characteristics have changed uh, of late. So what do you think is the is the reason for them to to pop up? Is it just that there's so much exuberance in the markets today and, and it's so easy to raise money that it's actually easier maybe to raise money for, for takeovers or mergers given the type of exuberance that we've seen? I think that's an element to it. So SPACs definitely provide liquidity. So both uh, they're influencing the supply and demand of capital uh, for companies that were private and want to have public equity within their structures. Now, we've looked at two broad uh, categories of, of SPACs appearing or, or becoming more popular of late. There is the, the reverse merger, uh, and these are companies forming a SPAC with the assistance of the investment bank uh, to reverse their own company as a means of facilitating an IPO. So it actually ends up looking very similar to an IPO once it's down the track and the, and the whole business combination has been uh, consummated. But it means there are a couple of crucial differences that uh, have emerged because of that. So if you look at the Uber IPO 2019, I was going to say last year, that uh, was originally talked about with a market cap of $120 billion, uh, And then once it actually IPO'd, I think it was closer to something like $70 billion. So there was a decent amount of disappointment there as to the actual price or capitalization for that business. To a certain extent, the SPAC takes that away. There is no uncertainty around the pricing because ultimately that is hammered out and agreed upon before the SPAC goes ahead. So I think some of the recent interest in this has been because the actual 
tech companies can retain a little bit more control around the pricing of their business versus the traditional IPO process uh, and, and where that goes to. And then the other type, I think, to your point as well, has been a little bit more around exuberance. Um, you have some opportunistic uh, IPOs or deal makers, as we call them. Um, they might be traditional private equity funds. It could be an ex-business CEO that has a good name in the, in the area. It could be an activist hedge fund. They are essentially building up war chests and going out to, to find companies to, to bring public. Are they bringing multiple companies into these SPACs or is it typically just a, a, a one, you know, one company to a SPAC? It's typically one company, but there has been various SPACs that have been multiple business combinations. So for example, there was one with Owl Creek, uh, mid-market lending, uh, Dial Capital, who owns uh, portions in uh, alternative managers, and a SPAC formed by HPS. And ultimately, they all combined together to form a listed alternative investment manager. And in terms of the, the cost differential, you mentioned sort of they use the assistance of the investment bank, but does it disassociate you know, the SPAC from the traditional very high fee cost of investment banking to get to IPO? Is this a, is this a cheaper approach as well? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the costs are always quite hard to actually understand. I mean, I think that's probably one of the various issues that has arisen due to the SPACs. Within, I think typically as, as it goes to IPO, there'll be a kind of a 2% underwriting fee. And then if there is a deal consummated and a de-SPAC process, then it will typically be another three and a bit percent. So that might be a bit cheaper than the traditional IPO process, but the investment banks are still doing pretty well out of this. Uh, and what you've actually seen is it used to be run and dominated by a whole lot of quite niche players in the, in the IB uh, space. As you've seen more capital flow in, and as you still have these quite interesting deals, all of the big Wall Street bank banks have, have jumped on it. Uh, so now, uh, if you look at the top five, it looks very similar to the top five uh, leading traditional IPO underwriters. Can you go into a bit more maybe of the structure of the way these, these SPACs are sort of set up? What specifically can they do? Yeah, so it is, it's quite a complex uh, process. Um, but essentially, there will be a SPAC that is um, raised, um, and it will be a particular amount which can differ. And it will be, um, quite often, they won't have a specific target in mind. Um, they will just say, we're raising $200 million to go after a particular ge uh, geography and a particular sector, at which point they can go to the IPO. They will be usually issued at $10 a share, but it doesn't have to be $10 a share. This is one of the things that becomes apparent within SPACs. There's kind of loose rules, but no actual hard rules. And at that point, they can go to IPO where they'll be traded as a SPAC unit. And then a certain number of days after that, you have the option of trade of splitting and trading as a SPAC share or the SPAC warrant. So the SPAC unit will often have a fraction of a warrant associated with it. But then afterwards, they can actually um, split. So you end up with three tradable entities, the SPAC unit, the SPAC stock, and then the SPAC warrant. Now, as the sponsor, and so this could be uh, a private equity or a management team that is seeking to uh, kind of acquire a, a company, they have the ability to gain about 20% of the 
kind of resultant equity in the company if a, a deal is consummated. So that's kind of the massive benefit for them. And it's referred to as the promote. And they'll essentially get a, a very nominal amount, well, spend a nominal amount for about 20% of the shares post an actual deal going through if it doesn't go through. Uh, the interesting thing about um, SPACs is that um, they have about 18 to 24 months to actually form a business com combination. If they don't, the business will get the trust gets paid back out. Uh, so the warrant's worthless, but your $10 of, of stock that you paid for can go back to you. In that time, it's actually sitting in short-term treasuries. So that's uh, another element to it. But part of the interest with alternative companies in all of this is that it provides a pretty interesting fee. If you're the, on, the, on the promote side, it provides a lot of complexity from the various units that can be traded. But there's also an element of downside protection should the deal not go through. The deal does get voted on, but of course, the, the manager, the sponsor already has 20%. So you need less than 50% of the public outstanding shares in order to actually uh, consummate that deal. So a lot of kind of intricacies to it, uh, but that's the general shape of them. So how do the warrants then work in terms of as performance does well, or they buy a company, then people can purchase more shares? How are they worked out? Yeah, so the warrants, when you have a, a, the initial SPAC unit, you'll pay $10 for it, and then it might have um, a particular fraction of a warrant attached to it. That seems to change. It could be a third, it could be a half, it could be a ninth. And then that will provide the option of, there'll be a strike price price associated with it, and you will essentially be able to buy a stock at $11.50, for example. So it's usually in excess of the, of the IPO price. Now, when it splits, you don't get a fraction of it. You will get a whole warrant and it will kind of be rounded up. So if it is a third fractional warrant within the, the SPAC unit, if you were to split those for every SPAC units you hold, you'd get one warrant that would entitle you to purchase um, a stock uh, at that particular strike price. All of that can vary though. Let's go back to the, the promote that you talked about. A 20% um, promote fee, I guess, is, is really what it sounds like. It's a very high performance fee and with absolutely no hurdle, it seems like as well. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's, it is very interesting. And it was one of the problems with SPACs in the past. They did have certainly an undertone of a lack of alignment uh, between their sponsor or, or those in a management position and the public buying the actual uh, SPAC units. Essentially, they could get 20% for pretty much nothing if a deal was consummated. So in the past, there was very much this concept of a... Um, a pump and dump type scheme because the, those that were receiving the promote were done. And even if the company subsequent to the merger underperformed, uh, they had already got a substantial chunk of that. Uh, as you po point out, there's no hurdle associated with it. Now, all of that has changed more recently. So because there is a number of SPACs potentially competing for the, the company, that promote can get negotiated down there are some SPACs out there that don't have a promote at all. They'll be potentially getting their investment funds that already charge management performance fees to invest into the SPAC at a kind of no fees basis. And as well as that, you have, yeah, I suppose the ability of the manager to vary the carry 
but also actually apply a hurdle in there as well. So some of the SPACs may contain warrants that aren't convertible until it actually hits a particular share price that would look similar to maybe an 8% preferred return on traditional private equity. How do these these shares trade in the listed market? Do you see the same sort of thing that you see with managed funds where they can list at some pretty big discounts, in some cases list at a premium to the underlying value? How, how is it trading in the, in the SPAC environment? It really is all over the show. So traditionally, uh, there was a lack of liquidity to some of the, the SPAC deals, and there was a chance that they would get orphaned. Um, so not followed by uh, analysts post a, a deal being done if there wasn't enough interest in that. Now, what is of, of interest sometimes is you have a unit price um, or an, a NAV, I suppose, associated with it because you can get your notional $10 back if nothing happens. Due to the lack of liquidity, you can see SPAC deals trading at below that fair value simply because the market in them wasn't uh, liquid enough for them to actually be fairly priced. The warrants, once they do split, will traditionally be a little bit more liquid. But as the market matures, you can also get borrow on the the SPAC shares themselves, uh, such that you can get arbitrageurs to uh, come in and actually yeah put some of the more gamma trading orientated uh, deals in place. You mentioned about you know you could get your money back if you put ten dollars in, you could get ten dollars potentially back. You know how do I think about the fees? You know obviously as you're looking and going through a whole series of deals, there's a lot of costs that come associated with that. Is there a particular amount that can be spent in that process? Yeah, so there is there is typically the the similar kind of uh, of fees and administration type things that would you would involve uh, that you would typically expect in an IPO process. So there's the uh, auditors, there's the legal fees, there's the underwriting fees. All of those things are going to be a cost to the overall SPAC trust that will have to be paid before the money is uh, returned. Now that, to be fair, would be nowhere near as large as the fees should a deal get consummated. So relative to, to the deal getting done, the fees if the money gets returned is relatively de minimis. So let's um, maybe go into a little bit more detail in terms of the different types of engagements that, that we've seen. You sort of touched on a little bit about hedge funds. There's some private equity players also moving into this market. You know, How do they both use SPACs? Yeah, so I mean, there was a, there's a Harvard study, I think, that um, identified about 50% of the SPAC deals involving either a private equity uh, manager or a hedge fund manager. So how would they typically be kind of involved? Within private equity, considering some of these companies are late stage growth or or VC, they could easily be the owners of these companies. You've seen a trend more recently of companies staying private longer. At some point, they uh, uh, the fund structures being what they are, they need to sell the companies either to another private equity or to kind of uh, a strategic partner, um, or they can go to traditional IPO. And now SPAC is another way for them to find liquidity. Uh, so they could be the, the seller of the companies. Quite often, of course, if they were to go into a SPAC, they don't have to sell all of their equity. So they could still have a controlling share of any of these uh, entities that kind of exist afterwards uh, due to how the the kind of equity and credit and uh, things get structured. But quite often they'll either be sponsoring a SPAC in-house and they're really trying to leverage relationships with banks and uh, sponsors to be able to kind of get that promote as a co-investor. So they're almost trying to get 
kind of uh, replication of the performance fees and, and carry that they would uh, in a typical private equity fund, or they could be participating in the SPAC via um, a pipe. So a private investment in a public equity. So one of the things I haven't really mentioned is that quite often the actual price for a company will be more than what was raised within the SPAC. So what happens in that particular case? Usually you have private credit and private equity that steps in to put money into the deal. So those are your very traditional private equity, uh, private credit, maybe some hedge funds, but it's predominantly those private market uh, funds that are, that are coming in at that point, usually with favorable economics in order to be able to get the deal done, so to speak. Is that like a line of credit that then that sits behind some of these deals? So there's a particular maybe amount of leverage that maybe come into the SPAC where they, they want to raise 200 million, but they'll also have 400 or 600 million on the side to... Yeah, so this is one of the benefits of the SPAC. Traditionally, in um, an IPO-type process, you'll need to have an elevator pitch and it will need to be relatively clean. All the deals can be far more complex than a SPAC. You could have two private equity holders, one that wants to sell, uh, one that actually wants to buy into the entity and hold it for further value creation because of just the, the timeline that they're at. What can happen as well is you could have quite a heavily leveraged private equity uh, company, uh, or sorry, a company held by a private equity fund that does have a lot of good prospects, but ultimately wouldn't be able to, the public markets couldn't really to tolerate that level of uh, leverage. So the actual SPAC process can be seen as to basically reshape the financials of that company. So it could be in the form of equity, it could be in the form of credit, it could be in the form of a convertible bond. All of these types of negotiations can go into a resultant structure of that public listed company. I'm curious, you know, a lot of the, the areas around the convertible arbitrage and convertibles that are available lines up with what hedge funds do. Are you seeing a lot of hedge funds playing particularly in this market? Yeah, so traditionally, hedge funds have been the main participants in the SPAC market. It's only recently you've seen far more credible management teams and private equity step in to really use this as a source of funds. Prior to that, it was very much kind of a, a niche kind of realm. In 2006, 2007, you had quite a bit of issuance, but the people doing the issuance didn't have a crazy amount of credibility. Now, from a hedge fund perspective, that's not problematic because you have the ability to just get your money back. So um, from a hedge fund perspective, they can participate pre-IPO and post-IPO. Pre-IPO, they're getting the funds at a discount. Um, as will traditionally be the case in IPO markets. So they'll be using using their name and sway to get kind of a slice of, of that new issuance at, at discount. And then from their perspective, they can hold it if the management company looks like they're going to consummate a, a good deal that the market is happy with. Quite often, as with typical mergers and acquisitions, if it is going to go through, the, the stock price can fluctuate above the actual issuance. Um, so that's beneficial from a hedge fund perspective, and they can try to gauge that. But at the same time, if it all goes wrong, they can exit uh, at, the, at the kind of $10 and benefit from that kind of discrepancy between what they're able to uh, purchase at and what they're able to exit. Now, 
you also have the post-IPO hedge funds participating. As mentioned, there's a, a SPAC unit combination of the kind of fractional warrant and, and the stock. And then on the split date, there's the potential for the stock tra to trade separately and the warrant to trade separately. But you pretty much get three tradable entities. That's great from a hedge fund perspective because they just sit there and price all of those. They've got the balance sheet to be able to apply leverage to a, a small potential profit, but with limited downside. I say limited downside because as we mentioned, it could technically trade below the uh, fair value uh, for a period of time during market illiquidity, which we actually saw in March last year, uh, 2020. Do you have any performance of post IPO, how some of these things have been performing? You know, obviously, it's very difficult and you can have a huge divergence in, in outcomes. Is there a, a reasonable median to, to look at for, for performance, I guess, over the last couple of years? Yeah, and that's a, that's a good question. It feels like the market is massively bifurcated from a historical perspective. If you looked at, let's call it pre-2018, and you invested every uh, a dollar in every SPAC, sure, you'd get your dollar back sometimes, but 70% of the time, if the deal went through, it would be a value-destructing deal. And so that's where you had this bad connotation associated with them, bad quality of management, bad quality of companies, uh, things that just shouldn't be public. But in recent times, in the last two or three years, you have had some really good companies that have been taken public via this, this back process. And we're still kind of in the, in the infancy at the moment of this seeing how this huge amount of capital that was raised actually goes into the market. Because you've got that dilutive effect of the promote sitting in there, quite often they'll need to find a far larger company, as mentioned, to really wash out that 20%. So it doesn't uh, seem as bad to the overall side of the company. So the $78 billion that was raised uh, last year for, for SPACs probably needs to go after about three times that amount in actual acquisitions, which is a huge amount. So the reality is not all of those SPAC deals are going to get done. You're going to get capital returned, and then you're likely to get a bifurcation in outcomes. Um, there'll be some good deals, uh, some bad deals, but it seems because of the quality of participants that has stepped up, the likelihood of that ratio of good to bad um, should have changed. Uh, compared to what we've seen previously. You mentioned that there'd been a number of poor actors that have been operating before. Have we seen any changes in the regulatory environment to maybe help improve the transparency and the, and the way that, that, that SPACs are operated and traded? Yeah, I think previously the SEC hasn't worried about it too much just because there hasn't been a crazy amount of, of capital raised relative to the rest of the goings-on in, in capital markets. So for example, I think the previous... Uh, kind of record high uh, prior to 2018 in terms of SPACs raised was I think 11 or 12 billion in uh, 2007. Now, relative to this, there's a huge amount, like six or seven times that has been raised just last year. And it does seem that the SEC has, has a bit of an eye on it because of that. Uh, so one of the things they're worried about is the lack of alignment, the fact that 20% of the promote can appear if, if a deal is consummated. And they have I kind of raised a flag as to the transparency. So I think one of the potential things to look out for in the SPAC market is increased regulatory scrutiny in the future. Let's take it back to investors, people looking to allocate to this sort of part of the market. How are you seeing investors looking at it? 
Yeah, so if we split it between private markets and hedge funds, the hedge fund side of things is, is a little bit easier. Most of the participants are either convertible bond funds or multi-strategy funds. So they'll typically try to have quite a market neutral approach to their overall strategy. And the SPAC process sits into that quite nicely. So they've participated in the, into this for uh, years and years. Um, certainly since we've been following multi-strat hedge funds. But now, because of the types of volumes you're seeing, it's playing playing a far larger role in uh, portfolios. So if you're in a multi-strategy hedge fund, it could easily be in uh, 15 to 20% of SPAC deals because they just benefit from more volume in the market. Because of this, you've got investors actually asking the multi-strats to carve out SPAC-specific strategies. So of late, there are SPAC-specific hedge funds that you can actually invest into that will, will kind of carve out that return stream. On the private equity side of things, this is really going to benefit investors because it could provide exits to their existing private equity funds that they hold, but also they could be actual investors into the the SPAC themselves and the, the ongoing entity. So there's a number of areas that they could benefit from, but generally speaking, the hedge funds are going to be relatively short-term holders benefiting from the ARB, and then the private equity are going to just benefit from the, the normal life cycle of, of buying and selling kind of growth to, to late, late stage VC companies. Is it fair to say that these SPACs would offer more liquidity than a traditional PE or VC style investment? Maybe VC is a bit too too early in the stage, but on a traditional PE? Yeah, it's just going to provide a route to exit. So whereas previously it might uh, kind of stay private or, or get put into the IPOs, there was, of course, a period of time where people were wondering if the IPO market is, is just is kind of dead to the, to the private equity companies now uh, as a source of liquidity because it just wasn't getting the outcomes they were after. This does feel like there is kind of another string to the bow in terms of being able to exit those areas. So the final question, are the concerns that we haven't touched on that you'd like to raise? And, and maybe is there any particular positive spaces to the SPAC market where people should be really taking a closer look at? I think it's definitely something that investors should up their education on because it's probably not going to go away. So a lot of the players that have entered the market have entered it for good reason. Um, They have a very credible name behind them. uh, And this is simply another place that they are looking to raise capital from. Uh, So for that reason, it's probably not going to go away. It will be cyclical, just like the IPO market cyclical. uh, It's going to be cyclical in a very similar way. So it's not like it is some kind of elixir that's going to kind of massively change things. What is likely to change is the regulatory scrutiny. It hasn't been an area that SEC has necessarily, or regulators in general, of course, because this can happen outside the US, have focused on. So because of that, as they get a change in the capital raise, they're likely to increase the focus, as we've seen with everything. Uh, And then within hedge funds, uh, I think investors can certainly benefit from some of the interesting characteristics that come on in this market. Hedge funds is simply going to benefit from an increase in volume, and they're going to be able to actually put together some interesting trades with that crucial downside protection. Uh, So that's always interesting. Now, do we think it's easier for a multi-strat manager to do the allocation as opposed to the investor going into a specific SPAC fund? I think we probably think that's the case. Mm -hmm. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Lincoln. Thanks, Alex. Great to uh, be on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. 
All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.